It's about the tools we use. It's about the stories we tell. It's about how we change. It's evolution, baby. All right, and we're back for another episode of Do the Evolution. And today I'm once again extremely excited to be joined by my man, Michael Porcelli. And today's topic is going to be extending to some extent um, many different things we've talked about over the, the, the last episodes of this show. But specifically, we've been exploring some themes around community, connection, resiliency. And our topic today, um, we're going to start in the nitty gritty of what it takes um, in in our mind here to not only, you know, create and go for authentic, juicy community and connections, but actually how do we strengthen those over time? And in my mind, um, that happens in a process of of rupturing and repair. And so we're going to start with a very specific strategy for doing that, that, that Michael has eloquently written about, we'll include in the, in the show notes, but we really want to dive into fully here. So Michael, go ahead and walk us through this process and why you think it's so important. Cool. Uh, before I get in the details of the process, I want to just introduce where it comes from, kind of the background, how I got to writing about it and why I think it's really important. And then we're going to you know, after we do the process, we're going to kind of branch it out to like how it applies more broadly in society. Um, but the <clears throat> many weekends that you and I have been part of or workshops, especially in the authentic relating and circling spaces, you know, if our listeners have been to any of these types of events, most of them start off with some set of like ground rules, agreements for the, for the duration of the workshop. And uh, at least at the integral center, we used a very specific agreement up front, which was, it was almost like the agreement platform. We called it the agreement about agreements, right? The integrity agreement. And um, the idea was we do what we say we're going to do. And if we um, fall down on any agreement or commitment we've made, then we do what we can to make it right, to put it right, to set it right. That idea is this kind of built-in sort of agreement that sort of pairs up with any other further agreements or commitments you make in the workshop. And it kind of sets people up to be able to have these deeper experiences for the duration of the workshop. And when we do this one, we not only say that that's what we're agreeing to, we give people a little repair process. It's called the DEER process, and that's the process you're talking about. I've called it now restoring relational integrity as more of a general concept. Um, But uh, the reason why I want to emphasize it is, is because sometimes I have found that people come to these workshops for this sense of deep connection, right? And they get to experience it and they go like, whoa, this was so profound. I feel so close. I didn't know I could connect to strangers that quickly or 
I've been sort of starving for it. And we've, we've talked about this on our previous one, the stitching, the social fabric one mm-hmm. where it's like there's a, seems like a, an increasing need societally for people to fill these connection and community needs that maybe have used to be fulfilled more by default, you know, in our hunter gatherer past or in our traditional religious communities, but it sort of is evaporated. So people come back and they want it. Um, but oftentimes when people leave the workshop, they sort of forget all about those agreements that we did on that Friday <laughs> afternoon. Right. And then they kind of go like, Oh no, we do this thing and we look into each other's eyes and we like ask each other really personal probing questions or, or we just reveal like, you know, deep truths, you know, like, and that's the thing, which is true. Those practices are kind of the juicy bits of authentic relating practice. But if one just focuses on those and tries to apply them to your relationships in an ongoing basis, your kind of longevity relationships, right? In a weird way, these relationships at the workshops, we talked about this last time too, oftentimes they're very temporary. Like the circle might last for an hour or this particular configuration of a weekend workshop might just last for three days and then poof, it's gone, right? But if you're talking about a family system or a team, a project team in your organization or friendships that you've had for many years, like just sort of diving in and trying to like do these types of practices very quickly can be a little weird. Um, and even trying to base a, an, a long-term, let's say intimate partnership or something off of just the connecting side rather than what I think of as the commitment or the integrity side is only half of the equation. And uh, a lot of authentic relating facilitators and teachers out there don't really emphasize this part of it that much. And this is why I'm really excited to talk about this, because inevitably conflict is going to arise. Rupture is going to arise. People will not follow through on what they said they were going to do. We'll be disappointed. I will be a disappointment to somebody who I care about. And what do we do about that? we have a natural impulse. You know, you might say authentic relating practices are like upgraded versions of things that humans already naturally do. Totally. And we are, we have a natural impulse to sometimes apologize or, or to seek forgiveness or to forgive, or sometimes we may feel as though we've been wronged and we want some, some form of justice or something or repair from another person like that motivation that kind of leads us to do things like offer an apology or make amends is the motivation. So if you're sort of wondering where this sort of fits in to your relational framework, the process we're going to talk about goes exactly where you might do like an apology, an amends or a seeking of reconciliation or forgiveness or repair, all those motivations. Those are the motivations for doing this process. I I love that. And, before we dive into that, I have a question for you. And, um, you know, so what happens if people don't have a tool like this available in their relationships, right? Um, or a process or a way to surface and, and deal with these types of conflicts, you know, in your mind, um, what goes wrong if we don't have something like this? Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a number of ways I think people, when they don't have a trusted process, they feel like works for this. 
um, people sometimes just ghost on each other. I mean, if it's if it's casual or just in the early stages, people will ghost and you'll be like, what the hell was that? And nobody knows what the hell that was because nobody's talking anymore, right? Something happened, you don't know what it was, and then poof, you're gone, right? Or they're gone. Uh, another one is um, the avoidance process. Mm-hmm. Or the, non- the avoidance non-process, which is kind of like, <laughs> okay, yeah, mm-hmm. I will simply, you know, for the sake of being nice, you know, it can, it can almost like, I sort of remember like as a young adult, like an early 20 something year old, it was almost like, oh yeah, being an adult means like not making a big deal out of things. Oh, no big, it's chill. Oh, fine. No problem. No, you you don't need to bother. You know, in Southern California, we have this, um, (laughs) this saying, no worries. worries." (laughs) That's so much. It's it's almost annoying the way how much they say in Southern California, but it's this kind of thing like, yeah, yeah, that's the adult thing to do. Right. No worries. But actually, that doesn't work. I mean, it can work up to an extent, but it's kind of like if your default mode is the no worries mode, and that's all you're kind of doing, and then when something big comes up, and you have no real experience succeeding at repair for smaller to medium-sized things, you will then go like, I actually have to do this now. And then you try, and then oftentimes that will just explode or go down in flames, right? Because now there's like a backlog of unspoken things, and even even people kind of, like, as you'll see when we get into the process, um, there's actually a, a discipline and a precision to doing it well. You know, sometimes people be like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so, so, so sorry. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Right. And then it's sort of like what's weird is that doesn't feel like it's repairing something. It actually sort of feels like if, if you were to do that to me, Jason, I would just be like, okay, now, now I feel obligated to make you feel better, even though you're the one who's apologizing to me for something you wrong, some way you wronged me somehow now totally. that's not even what's happening anymore. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I've I've been very guilty of this one. <laughs> you know, one of one of my many shadow sides uh, that that I joke about in my men's work is uh, the the my shamanator. It's like the my terminator of shame. Uh, sometimes he'll he'll show up if I've done something wrong, and it, I've I've used this before totally right. Like, oh my god, I'm so sorry. I'm such a da 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 da. And then it's all yeah, and we'll get into like what that does yeah. versus what this process does. Um, but I, I just wanted to like kind of paint that picture a little bit because um, while you know those outside of our authentic, authentic relating communities might not be familiar with the process like this, I think a lot of people are familiar with what happens when there's tension in a relationships or relationships and trust has been breached, but there's no repair, right? Or there's no process, and how that builds up over time and, and can create a lot of dysfunction or oppressive aggressiveness or just lack of trust. You know, something in the work I specifically do with men in relating to the feminine, huge one, huge, 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 huge one. The, the many ways that um, us men can often not kind of come through on our word and then the impact that has on our partner's nervous system over time. Um, and, and we wonder why, like, she doesn't want to, you know, be around us or trust us or open our heart to us. And it's like, Oh, okay. It's all these little ruptures 
that there wasn't a process to bring the harmony back. Um, mm-hmm. So I say we just dive in, man. To tell it. Tell us about the, you know the roots of this process, um, and let's do it. Yeah. So uh, a good friend of mine, also somebody I think you, you're familiar with, his name is Mark Michael Lewis, was part of the early days of the authentic relating community, and. Um, I don't know where his influences came from on this, but he kind of put it into an acronym called DEAR. And I'll take you real quick through the acronym DEAR. I'll give you a real quick example, and then we'll explore each step of the process. But it, the acronym is meant to be like a four-part a four part thing, usually done in that order. It's recommended order. Um, so here we go. The D for in the DEAR is DECLARE. And so just so you know, like this is a declaration that you broke an agreement. Alternatively, it could be a declaration that you violated one of your own rules that you have for yourself. Um, some, sometimes it'll be like a pang of conscience, like, oh, I don't like exploding or calling somebody names. And I may not have made a commitment to you. I'm not going to raise my voice and call you names, but then I did. And that, now I feel like, oh, shit, I don't like that I showed up that way. So I'm violating either a commitment I've explicitly made with you or... I violated a commitment I have to myself. I'm declaring, okay? Explore is the E, mm-hmm. which is me now checking and exploring the impact that my violation had on you. Welcoming your experience. I'm asking you how it was. I'm receptive. I'm validating whatever you know impact you had based on what I did. The A is making amends. This is this is the core of the making it right gesture, right? What is it, not that I want to do to make it up for you, <laughs> what is it that you would need from me in order for you to feel like this relationship is repaired, right? And there's a little bit of a negotiation in there as well. And, you know, we'll get into like how to ask for good amends as, as the kind of the the person who is the aggrieved on being on the receiving end of a deer, but like here as the person who's declaring I'm exploring now, what can I do to make it up to you? Then once that's done, or you at least have a plan on how the repair is going to go, uh, you do the R step, which is to recommit either to the original agreement or to renegotiate it to like improve it or potentially drop it altogether. So recommit or renegotiate the R sort of is serves two purposes there. Got it. That's I got it. I love it. Cool. So you want me to just do a simple example, right? So this, this, this may sound like, whoa, this is complicated. Can I just say I'm sorry? Right? Like, <laughs> it'll be very elaborate and take a very long time. And sometimes it does. And when we do it at course weekends, sometimes we're like, okay, oh, we're gonna all sit here while this person does a deer process. Blah blah blah. Um, but I think it can actually be very quick and easy. Um, so like the example that, uh, my buddy Decker would, would say is this basketball one. Let's say you're like at a pickup game, street basketball, there's no refs, right? You know, something happens and you know, like the guy fouls you right Mm -hmm. now he could just kind of just keep playing and you might be sitting there going like, well, it wasn't that big of a deal. Like, no worries. Right. Let's just keep playing. Right. (laughs) You might be sort of holding back in terms of how you would play well. But let's say the guy that fouled you was like, hey, that was my bad. Calls a foul on himself. I did a foul. You got knocked on your butt, right? Are you all right? Explore. 
And you might be like, yeah, I'm, I'm good, bro. I'm like, all right, here, let me help you up. I reach out my hand. Cool. And then I look at you and I say, that won't happen again. Thanks. Boom. That's all four. Like won't happen again is the recommit, right? Like, yeah. so you can just be very, very quickly just like, Hey, I did that. Anything like, what was that like? Anything you need? I'll do it for you. And won't happen again. So that's just to give you the example, like the quick and simple way. It doesn't have to be this burdensome overbearing long process. Although sometimes getting into depth with a process, depending on the significance of the violation really is crucial. Yeah. So I want to do the quick and dirty one there for you. Yeah. What, what I love about that too is um, I'm imagining the more actively one takes on a practice like this, mm -hmm. right? committing to um, using deer when I know I've, I, I've crossed a boundary or broken an agreement or whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. um, I'm imagining if this is something I was actively doing consciously all the time, it, it would actually <laughs> over time prevent from having to have the big, super huge, deep ones where like it's been earth shattering and there's so much backlog of stuff to process. But like what I love about what you just said is, um, you know, if we're just constantly doing it, it can be quick. Like these are just quick boom, a little prick, a little fix, a little prick, a little fix versus I think sometimes where I've gotten um, in trouble, so to speak, or caused damage is not doing some of these types of practices proactively. And then the backlog gets so deep and so big that there's not even just processing one thing <laughs> because the things are all entwined and there's like so much emotion because, well, you didn't do this last time. And that's actually part of why I'm pissed this time. And so I, I, I love that it's quick. I love that it's simple. And I love that it's just easy to, to remember. It's like such a great just deer. Boom, 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 boom. Yep. Yep. So I'm going to do the more kind of in-depth one. Um, so D, D for declare. It really just is um, the right starting point is to simply declare that you violated an agreement or a value rather than starting off with an apology. It's not that apologies are bad or unwanted. I just think it's a more effective to sequence it this way. So I would say something like, I am late. I agreed to you that I would be on time. Period. Right? Like there was the agreement and here's the violation. I'm just acknowledging that. I'm not waiting for you to bring it up. I'm just acknowledging it. Right? So uh, the other, you know, if you start off with the, the I'm so sorry, shamanator thing, creating another dynamic, even as you're trying to repair it, that's actually sort of getting in the way. Yeah. Cool. It, it right. can, that, that process for me, something I've come to come to learn, right. Is it actually makes it about my feelings, right? It's a, it's a subtle way to redirect instead of the focus being on the impact of the violation on my partner or who I'm relating with, right. If I go to shamanator, then it's about, oh, it's about me. It, and, and it can quickly just spiral into that. So I, I love that this practice um, and even just declaring it, A, it's, it's, it's just naming what happened, right? Which is so simple, <laughs> but uh, such a profound thing because even in that, um, a lot of clarity can be brought between the two parties about what the exact violation or agreement break was. Because boom, as soon as I say that, you may be like, oh, actually that's not quite the thing. And then we can, you know, get a little more clarity around that versus like just coming right in with the apology. 
that you don't have that kind of shared reality about exactly what's going on here and what happened. Yes. Do you understand, uh, you know, for me to kind of name, here's the agreement and um, here's how I violate it, ha- just shows a certain awareness of the system on my part already, which which I imagine would relax me as someone who, if I was on the receiving end of a deer. Totally. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up. And the shared reality aspect, which is a kind of a reference back to a talk we had previously, plays an important part here to make sure like as we go, we're kind of have a mutual understanding of what we're talking yeah. about. And that kind of comes back to the ways of creating shared reality in in the kind of communication protocol of checking for understanding and asking for understanding is all kind of woven throughout here. The other error that can happen at the D is, um, you know, I might say like, just say what happened. And part of somebody saying what happened is like, well, here's what happened. So I this, and then I spilled my coffee on my shirt, and then I did that, and then I got in the car, and then there was traffic, and then I was late, and that's I agreed to be on time. And it's kind of like you're building in like a preemptive explanation. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Don't do that. People are so tempted to do that. Yeah. And because well, it really wasn't my fault. I mean, exactly. you just have to, if you had know, knew the context, you would understand, and then you wouldn't be as upset with me. And the funny thing is, that's probably true, actually. Yeah. If the person understood the context, they would understand more, right? And it may be 100% accurate that these, these factors that were partially out of your control really did contribute to the violation of the agreement. And it's the timing of the sequence that is important to zoom in on here. Like, yes, you can explain if the person would like an explanation, right? Focus on the person who is aggrieved, on the person who has had the damage done to is the priority. Got it? So that brings us to E when we're exploring impact. Again, this can be tempting to explain, but it's not explain. E is explore impact. Where really I'm just like, hey, oftentimes I'll just say something like, I'm open to hearing and I'm interested in any impact this had on you. And then pause and just see what the person says. Right. And they might, might actually be surprising. They might be like, huh, it really wasn't a big deal. I didn't even notice. Or it might be one of those things where it's like, you know, you thought maybe they were going to be angry and they're sort of like, yeah, I got worried about you. Yeah. I started wondering if you were okay or something like that. It's, it's fascinating sometimes to do it in this way because often an unexpected impact that you did not imagine was happening is part of the impact that happens. But some common ones are things like I, maybe I felt sad or hurt or disappointed. I lost a little bit of trust or something like that. Mm -hmm. Those are usually common. Um, But another common one too is the person might be no, no worries. No big deal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Totally. And with that one, it sort of depends on the context of the overall relationship and who this person is to me. But if the, if this is like me doing a deer process with a new person and, you know, they're not authentic relating trained, but I am and I'm trying to make a thing right. I'm like, I'm like, oh, no big deal. I'll be like, cool. Well, if it's no big deal, that's totally fine. But I do want you to know that, like, I am actually interested in even if it was 
a small deal, I would still be interested in knowing. And that's not a real threat to, to our relationship. It actually really helps me to hear something like that, just to add just a little extra curiosity. And then maybe they'll be like, yeah, I don't want to say anything. And that's fine. But sometimes it just takes that to open it up because like people are sometimes programmed a little bit to this kind of like, oh, like um, getting back at other people, like mm -hmm. emotional manipulation. I will share like, I, well, I wouldn't want somebody to share with me how it impacted them because they're just going to like tell me about their dramatically horrible emotions to like make me feel bad. Right. So I'm not going to make you feel bad. So they maybe think they're, I'm doing them a favor or they're yes, doing exactly right. But I'm like, no, 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 even small, let me know. Just creating that. Yeah. in that little permission, that little space to kind of invite anything. Right. It's okay. If it's small, like it's still interesting to me, it's still important to me to know it. Um, I definitely think the kind of no worries culture <laughs> does permeate some of us and, you know, nice guy syndrome, something I've definitely dealt with before of just, um, oh, no, it's it's okay. You know, no worries. I, uh, you know, there, there's a certain type of um, like nothing bothers me-ness some of us carry that like, oh, it's okay. You know, I don't want to make a big deal out of it because I've seen other people make big deals out of things and it's not... Uh, you know, it's not productive in my mind, but when someone's like it, it, what, what I really like about that is it's just, it's, it's, it's a little dose of care. It's just a way to show that like, I care. Okay. You know, it, even if it is small, I, I just care. I want you to know that. Yeah, totally. And over time you'll realize, you know, when I, when I'm in the aggrieved party, when I'm on the receiving end of a deer, I'll be like, oh, it really honors the relationship for me to share with you actually what, how it did impact me. Yeah. Like it maybe even feels a little bit vulnerable for me to say it, but I mean, I don't have to make a big, you know, deal out of it, but it's, you know, more than just saying no worries. It's saying like, no, oh, this happened. I got worried about you. I felt a little bit trust pinged. I started like wondering if we should make a new agreement or whatever. Right. Like these kinds of things are helpful. They're like the raw materials, which brings us to a, make amends people who are in 12 steps know the kind of amends thing is kind of a almost like a ritualized portion of the culture there which i think is really great i think actually that i don't know what number that is in the 12 steps but that is actually a restorative practice in the same way that restoring relational integrity the deer process is they parallel each other um now this is where the apology might come in i'd be but i'd be like jason like um Hey, you know, let me know what I can do to make this right. Yep. What can I do to make this up to you? Now, sometimes, you know, sometimes with uh, intimate relationship partners, sometimes, uh, you know, my woman will say, I just want to hear you say you're sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'll be like, <laughs> no problem. I am sorry. And now it's different. It's not like, oh, I'm so sorry. So sorry. Like, right. Like. It's, it's fitting in right here. Another one people often will want, although not always, is like, help me understand what happened. Mm -hmm. Now you get to explain. Explain away, right? Because they want the explanation as part of what it will take for them for this to be made right. 
Yeah, and it, it's coming at a time where it's not used. And what I like about the sequence is for it to come then, like I'm not using it as an avoidance technique to, exactly. right, to avoid the fact that an agreement was broken. And then for me to understand the impact on you, like once that's been had, then we can talk about it. But, uh, you know, I think the ways I've, I've done the, the other version of this, right. Bringing in the, the context first or starting with the shamanator kind of, um, circumvents some of that and, and makes me not have to feel or fully acknowledge my part in it. Right. It's always oh, it the context. It was the situation, um, mm -hmm. which in also, you know, bringing in the apology here, what, what I love about it again is this far in, yeah, there's an awareness of the system, even clearer, like, oh, yeah, right, if we've done D and we've done E and we're now like moving into A, um, the apology has weight <laughs> because there's clearly been a discussion of what actually happened versus like, well, I just don't want you to be mad at me. So I just start with an apology, which, which doesn't actually necessarily bring any clarity to the system or, um, you know, as we'll talk about how this can actually be used as a tool for deepening connection over time. Yes. Um, whereas the bringing it in this process, like I think it anchors it in a way that um, makes it more useful for moving forward. Mm -hmm. Totally. So all kinds of things can show up in A and they may be short, like, Oh, just give me a hug or <laughs> yeah. Uh, buy me a drink <laughs> or would you cook me some dinner or, you know, like give me some chocolate. Like, I mean, it's kind of funny mm -hmm. that tokenized it. Re what matters is, is that it's the thing that the other person needs. You, the, we're focusing on the needs of the aggrieved part, basically in this case. And, um, this is where like, I have a little bit of a caution to, on the role as the receiver in the aggrieved party, this may be a moment where you feel tempted to extract retribution, to make the person pay or to punish them in some way that actually won't have you feel better about the relationship. So when somebody says, Hey, what can I do to make this right? Like take that request very precisely and literally like, what do I need for this to be right Mm -hmm. Right. Like, and you know, I think most people kind of know what it's like, like in a moment of outraged or grievance to want to do something back to another person. So maybe you get sort of a temporary thrill of like making them pay, but then that actually feels shitty to you after having done so. So really focus on like when this occurs, when this amends that I'm asking for happens, I'm going to feel great about myself and this person in the relationship. And I, I love how that ties into even how you, you know, we're, we're framing this talk and the piece you wrote about this process of restoring relational integrity um, in that, because, you know, what I hear when you talk about the, you know, I could extract some retribution or whatnot, there's, there's things I could ask for that would be great for me, but not necessarily serve the relationship, the actual unit, yes. the system itself moving forward versus, you know, what I hear you really emphasizing here is 
how, like how I hear that is what would I need to trust our relational unit more, right? To feel more in balance with this relational unit, which might actually be a little different than, you know, what my little punisher <laughs> wants or what the, my little tender little boy wants, you know, that's like, well, I want you to, you know, um, sleep on the couch for 40 days or, you know, I don't know. That's just the example I made up. Uh, You're in the doghouse, bro. <laughs> but yeah, I, I like, I like just the frame of the relational integrity. Like what would it take for me to feel like I can participate in this relational unit again, fully trusting it. Right. Um, and it's, it's a subtle shift, but I think it's really important what you're pointing out there. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, think about what it would take to restore trust and to mm -hmm. back in, full in. Now, sometimes, you know, and now we're kind of getting to, let me not go there quite yet. Sometimes the thing that is enough really is, hey, the only amends I need is for you to recommit to the agreement, right? In which case we're sort of like going right past A, which is fine. Sometimes that's the only A you need. Or, you know, sometimes the standard one is like, Please apologize. Explain to me why it happened, and then please recommit, and then we're done. Right? Like, mm -hmm. that's like the kind of like the standard model version of it. But uh, you know, recommit or renegotiate. What's interesting about this is this is where evolution of the relationship can occur. Right? It might be let's restore maybe a previous configuration, or like let's make it right so that we can go back to how it was. But sometimes it might be, no, this agreement it is no longer working in the terms that it was in, mm -hmm. right? Like, can we do it sort of differently? You know, and I, I had this one where I went back and forth with, uh, you know, it was one of my coworkers at the Integral Center. She would come and pick me up. And sometimes I would be late to coming out to the car to meet her. And I would do a deer process and we did it a few times. And then we kind of got to the R after I had violated that agreement a couple of times. And she's, and she's like, would you recommit to this? And I'm like, can we make a new version of this? And so we actually created a new, a new version. And it was something like, I don't remember. It was like up to, I have a, I have like a, I don't know, a three minute grace period or a five minute grace period, something like that. And if I go over that, then, um, I will, treat her to a meal of her choosing if I go past it. And I'm this, so we kind of created a new, a new version of it. Yeah. Um, now this doesn't mean that, uh, you know, that the, the agreement you had before was a bad one. It just means you've now collected more data. Totally. The relationship itself is learning and evolving because you're realizing, Oh, the, the way that this agreement is kind of configured could be refined in some way. Maybe a particular agreement has served its purpose and you're like, cool, let's drop it. We don't need this one anymore. Right. Um, that one, I recommend you wait for the aggrieved person to suggest rather than, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but, um, but yeah, like the, the, this is where I sort of think it, the restoration word, it may be slightly misleading because it might sort of feel like you're restoring an old situation which is only true some of the time but the other piece is that it's oftentimes really is an evolution right it's it's almost like we're both listening in like let's say there's like a third entity which is our relationship 
Mm-hmm. We're kind of asking, what does it need to like evolve over time here to be improved by the learning? Like we, we learned, right? We made an agreement. I broke it. I made the same agreement. I broke it. I made amends. Okay. A new agreement is necessary now. What does it look like? What's the reconfiguration there? I, I think that one's so important. Yeah. And so powerful just because, yeah, the new data is coming in and right. Even having the process, right. Which brings, I think, you know, to take this on as a practice in relationship is going to bring more awareness to when these types of violations occur Mm -hmm. and then make us more aware of why they're occurring. Right. Sometimes it's just, I drop the ball. Sometimes, you know, I particularly, you know, was thinking about, uh, you know, this this fourth step in particular for me as someone who tends to overcommit to things um, would be a very proactive thing for me to come in. Hey, here's an agreement we had that I totally violated. Da 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 da. And you know, to be honest, at the end, I'm overcommitted. I'm not able to fully show up in this agreement as we have it right now. So here's my proposition for you know what I can agree to. Now that I've been doing this job for three days or X, Y, or Z, um, which allows me then, you know, to be more in integrity moving forward with yeah. a new agreement that actually serves a relationship more versus me pretending like I can keep a, committing to an agreement I just can't, you know, I don't have the capacity for, um, but I should be able to or da, 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 da. Um, so I, I love the, the, the ability to reevaluate, you know, the, the, the agreement, the container at the end feels so important and like so freeing <laughs> just yeah. that it's even on the table is something we can discuss and, and discuss in a way that could potentially create more trust, you know, like a new agreement that maybe actually would be creating more trust between us or more connection between us. Totally. I love when you brought in the overcommitment thing, because I, I do a similar thing, especially if you have like one of these longer term deep, like, you know, you and your wife or you and a business partner uh, have, which is like, I may have a a kind of grouping, a set of agreements, commitments that I've made with you, right? And maybe as we went through this process and we're exploring, I was over here trying to make sure I kept up agreement A and then (laughs) violated agreement B, right? So totally, when we get to recommit and renegotiate, it's, a, it's also sort of like an ecology check and sort of look at like maybe what we need to do is actually sort of bring in some other ones so we can adjust both of them perhaps, right? It doesn't have to be nice like this particular agreement and how I broke it, but maybe, cool. Well, if I'm going to keep this one up, I'm going to need a little bit more grace on this one or something, more leeway or of some kind or something like that. Yeah, so so empowering, so exciting, I, I think. And uh, just, I get... Yeah, I get get shivers thinking about this of like, oh man, to to have this fully rolling, like would feel so good. Just feel so good, even thinking about going in and, and getting clear and making these things explicit and owning it. You know, I I love the proactive piece of this just so much because it's there's a way to just you know part of what I help men with specifically in in relationship is leading, <laughs> like taking the lead, and there's a way like this is definitely something I'm going to be educating them on because it's such a proactive thing that um, 
is a way to really show care for a relationship by proactively like, oh my God, I totally didn't do that thing or that thing and just coming in and handling it. Yep. Like I, I can just, I can feel the relief in my nervous system <laughs> if someone came to me proactively around something like this of just like, wow, that felt so good. And that's going to allow me to connect to that person in, in a different way. Yep, totally. So I want to start to broaden this a little bit. One is like my number one pro tip, the way to do this wrong, like the com most common failure error mode is you need to give me a deer process. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you give me one and you give me, no, don't do that. Like it's, it's tempting because now you have this thing, especially if you have a culture like we did at the, at, at the integral center where a lot of people were practicing deer with each other on an ongoing basis, especially on faculty team. Um, it can be a mistake to demand somebody else do one. Now it's, not always. I mean, it's actually kind of interesting here. Like if you feel this urge, like you've been aggrieved in some way and you want someone to do a deer, it doesn't mean you have to shut up and not do anything. This is actually, it's a slightly different skill, right? It's, it's not the demand somebody do a deer one. It's actually uh, doing the thing where I need to share something with you, the, the, the clearing process and, or um, it's called different things, giving and receiving feedback or, Clearing a withheld communication. For those of you who are familiar with these practices, you know what we're talking about. That's the proper starting point if you believe that you've been aggrieved so that the person can receive the information that maybe they have violated an agreement that they had with you. Because sometimes it's sort of weird because it's like, oh, I had an implicit expectation or boundary that you violated, but I never made an agreement with you about it. Yeah. So it's totally wrong for me to go like, hey, by the way, give me a deer process for this boundary that you violated that I have that you didn't know about, right? <clears throat> wrong, right? Like, but if you feel injured in some way or hurt or something happened, that's a signal for you to initiate the, a clearing or feedback process out of which you might create a new relational agreement, potentially, at and then from there on, the deer process applies. Or, you know, if we have a long-term relationship, you know, like the example I gave, we already had an agreement about me being on time by the car. Cool. So, you know, she could easily go, Porch, you were late. I would like you to do your deer process. You know, sort of like, okay. <laughs> pretty easy for me to like just do it because I know that I, you know, more often I would be proactive about it. But like if you kind of have a culture that, that has these ideas of uh, commitments and agreements and, and like keeping them up to date, right? Then this kind of becomes a regular part of it, but sort of knowing the difference between when the moment is about giving, revealing something, giving somebody feedback or sh clearing out a withheld communication versus demanding a deer, which is not how it's supposed to be used. The deer is a proactive thing when you, Violate an agreement, you know it, or you violated one of your own commitments to yourself and you want to share that with somebody. Yeah, I, I love that frame because, again, kind of bringing it back to like leadership and proactivity, um, being proactive, there's like, by being the one to initiate tears, right? Mm -hmm. That's how you create the culture. <laughs> like, I go first. 
right? Mm-hmm. And the more I go first, I think the more other people are going to more easily step into that space, oh, right? If I'm the team leader, if I'm um, even the one introducing this practice into my relationship, let's say, or my men's group or different areas where this might type type of thing might really be um, useful is I can start to change the culture of the relationship by just going first and by initiating this process. And that's actually, I think, probably, I imagine would more effectively kind of uh, invite others into then feeling safe to, to dear me, so to speak, yeah. um, when they notice something like that versus like, I, 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 I can just get a, a feeling in my nervous system of that, like, I'm going to introduce this conceptually and then secretly it's because I just, you know, or not so secretly then, oh, because then I can make my partner do it for me, right? Without necessarily doing it myself first. Yeah. Yeah. So this is now, now we're going to get expanded because that's a perfect segue to, you know, there may be people who are listening in here who themselves have decided to take leadership in creating authentic relating community or maybe hosting and facilitating game nights or circling nights. Um, or, you know, maybe you have a, a, an intimate relationship or partnership or, or a household where everyone's on board with, you know, the principles and practices and the values that are underlying authentic relating or conscious communication or something closely related. Well, the, what you can do there is you can actually make an explicit context. This kind of actually brings in the setting context skill, which is that's the one that creates new agreements, right? It says who and what and where and when and how long and why. And that's a, a, a deeper dive conversation to get into all of the nuances of context. But when I'm setting a context up, that really is sometimes a, a, an agreement we are making for a duration or something totally. like that. Or for a location. So it might be, well, so long as you're living at this house, <laughs> here's the agreements we're going to live by or something. I mean, that's a bit authoritarian the way that I just did the example, but it's sort of like negotiated. But before you even get into that, one of the things that you should put into the context that I highly recommend is an agreement to use the deer process to repair any broken agreements. Right. That should be like your meta agreement, like sort uh, yeah, of absolutely. all the rest of them. I, I think that's so great. I'm actually realizing that's going to be a powerful thing for me to implement in some of my men's groups um, as an explicit, right. And as an explicit, because, um, you know, the, the word um, that, you know, the lineage of men's work I'm trained in, it, we use all the time, which is another version of what you're speaking to is the container. So what is the container? You know, it's just another word for the context with which we're uh, participating or interacting in, right? The container for the weekend, the container for the relationship, the container for our work environment. Um, And, you know, that's strongly related to culture. You know, what is the culture of how we're going to work together? Oh, part of our culture is we use this process to deal with um, ruptures, right? In Mm -hmm. agreements. And that's... Oh man. Yeah. We're, we're going to get some (laughs) more into that coming up, but like such a crucial piece, such a crucial piece. And so I love, I love making it explicit that this is our process for how we break agreements as the first agreement, (laughs) so to speak. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, what's, what's so cool about, I mean, in a way, you know, this is maybe, uh, the foreshadowing of where this conversation is going, but like, this is where, you know, to connect the micro to the macro, this is where the need for justice systems comes from. Like, we talked a lot about this in our last conversation, where it's like everything in the social fabric, whatever we want to call it, any institution we have, a state, a government, a company, a community organization, is built out of the building blocks of human relationships, right? And you can kind of maybe rewind time into history before any of those institutions were built. People were probably having conversations along these lines. You can imagine, you know, small hunter-gatherer groups of people, indigenous peoples and this kind of stuff, where it's like, hey, like, what do we do when someone has wronged someone else? Or someone has brought harm to our group. What is it that we need socially, relationally, emotionally, in order to like repair that in some way? And what I love about this is is it it um, it favors the like the cohesion or the coherence of the group. And the, the key connection I'm going to make here is because it, to do this well, it sort of demands you take responsibility for your part. On both sides, actually, like the, the person who committed the infraction, this is like being proactive, like we've talked about. Hey, I broke an agreement. Hey, I violated one of my own values. Um, but then on the side of the aggrieved party, it's kind of like exploring impact. What do I say? No worries. Or do I say, hey, actually it had this impact. That's vulnerable. And that's me taking responsibility for my side of having been aggrieved in some way. And hey, what can I do to make this right? What can I do to make it up to you? And you're kind of like, eh, nothing. And you're kind of like, if the person did nothing, would that really restore your trust in the relationship? Probably not. Okay, so what do you need? Like, so what do we need so that this can then continue, actually kind of calls forward in both parties taking ownership of their part? And that kind of, the bridge I'm building here is it sort of um, undermines any kind of um, perpetual victimhood or the perpetuation of a sort of victim villain or a victim perpetrator oppressor dynamic because if your group your small little group yeah starts to create this thing where it's like no here's we have oppressors in our midst and we have victims who are always at the whim of the oppressors in this group that group is headed for disintegration unless those relationships can be repaired in some way Yeah, I love the, the, there's a, the word hope comes up to me. There's just like a hopeful feeling about this dynamic um, in that, that proact, 
being proactive on both sides, I think is really important. And the responsibility that, yeah, not only of the agreement breaker, but of the one who was um, impacted, like there is a responsibility for naming it and helping um, bring forth something to restore harmony, Mm -hmm. right? To the system or to bring that trust back in a way that allows things to move forward versus, um, you know, the more traditional kind of being stuck in the, the shadows thing or not, not offering a way for it to be fixed is just going to perpetuate that. You might get an apology, right? Oh, I'm so sorry. I hurt your feelings. Um, but if I'm not able actually to name some way to, to fully bring my, me back in to the process, to the trust that it's, you know, it's kind of just like sweeping it under the rug and it's just going to catch up catch up, catch up, catch up. And, and I imagine the dysfunction may actually grow over time versus the, just the proactiveness of, yeah, both taking responsibility for the system between us. Yes. Right. Yes. And, and my God, <laughs> how much do we need that at large right now? Oh yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely, you read between the lines on, you know, kind of broader social issues um, that are kind of tearing our society apart right now. Um, and maybe we'll address that a little bit going forward as we kind of expand into the macro. But before we get to kind of societal level issues, I want to bring in something that that many people in the personal growth and development or um, psychotherapy world are familiar with. Uh, it goes by several names. Typically, the drama triangle is one of them. Some people call it the victim triangle. Um, it has a, its Wikipedia entry is called the Carpman Drama Triangle, which is named for a fella, Stephen Carpman, in 1968. He was, he actually was a member of the Screen Actors Guild. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. Did not know that. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> this is, uh, kind of brings in another um, thing that I often use as a lens on relationships, which is a, a dynamic, a relational dynamic. And you could think of a, you know, it's simple to see relational dynamics, especially in physical uh, endeavors like, you know, sports, right? This is baseball and this is the pitcher and this is the catcher and this is the batter, right? And all three of them are doing different actions, uh, different roles, you might say, in order to create that, you know, dynamic, which is somebody's up at the plate at bat. Right. Or if you think of partner dancing, I did salsa dancing a lot in my past and I love it. And it's like, those are clearly delineated roles. There's the lead and there's the follow and they do very different things. And together, the lead and the follow fully committing to their role in the dynamic, create the dance. And it's beautiful. Dynamics can be beautiful and wonderful and empowering. And there's, you can see all kinds of them, you know, in, in, um, kind of kink world you see you know doms and subs create certain kind of dynamics because it's very thrilling to do those sorts of things but uh you know and it becomes very formalized when you get into organizational life we actually start having like official titles and things like that which is again micro to macro right like there's mm -hmm. a relationship between you know these roles of maybe it's just a teacher and student you know or a mentor and apprentice or these kinds of dynamics that na naturally form in our social lives, just as social animals. 
And the drama triangle is kind of one of these ones that is used to identify a kind of a, a bad dynamic, <laughs> which, uh, t- so to go through it and I, I would love to hear, you know, your familiarity with it and maybe how you've used it. Um, but the three roles is sort of like a, it's like the pitcher, batter, catcher, right? There's three roles. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one is the victim. Uh, the other one is the, the rescuer. Sometimes this one's called the hero. And the other one is called the, uh, the villain or the persecutor or the oppressor. That's the third one. And this triangle kind of people kind of act out their roles. Like the victim is saying, Hey, I'm at effect. Somebody is violating something. Somebody's hurting me or harming me or oppressing me. Sometimes I think of the, was that the Monty Python help, help I'm being oppressed. Totally. <laughs> and uh the the persecutor is the person or group of people or whoever who's kind of being blamed or shamed or guilty for like creating the situation that is harming the victim and the rescuer is the person who's coming in to like save the day like let me help let me like white knight and fight off the bad guys or whatever this is you know and What's interesting is, you know, that I think there are some times when it really is just a thing that is happening, right? There are people who are being victimized, who, it, you know, in history, the oppression is real. There's very little they can do to improve their situation. The oppressors kind of have this, like, self-perpetuating power and privilege that, like, you know, seems like they're the aristocracy in in medieval Europe or something like that, or the slaveholders in the American South, like is another example. And then you need somebody to come in and go like, Hey, Hey, not okay. We're going to stop doing this. Right. And so the hero kind of comes in and sort of helps to break up the, the, the oppression dynamic that exists between the victim and the persecutor. So I don't want to make light that, you know, that it, just because we're calling it the drama triangle, um, means that it's it's just purely uh like a fiction um but the way that it does get used in uh dealing with interpersonal relationships especially family systems the family theory family systems theory or uh transactional mm-hmm. analysis uh, if you're familiar with any of these kinds of approaches for especially working with homes and families is like this kind of going into those roles can sometimes happen you can sort of see the triangle form right it's like you know i don't know mom's playing the victim dad's the oppressor and this eldest son is kind of intervening to help or you name it like some way of like creating a drama where there actually is a a a payoff for all three people for being in that role and they kind of end up sort of stuck in this dynamic where instead of it being restored or being able to kind of go back to the place of trust where, and, and this trust is this voluntary, mutual, dignified, respectful exchange that like, I trust our relationship. You trust our relationship. We as a group trust our relationship instead of kind of being like, you know, you know, I just ignore them until some shit blows up. And then I just show up to like protect the powerless and like <laughs> prosecute the, vi- the villain. Right. 
Yeah, totally. Th- this is one, you know, I definitely see this come up in men I work with and in, in how they approach relationships, sometimes as the rescuer, sometimes as the victim, sometimes as the perpetrator, for sure. And, you know, I like what you spoke to about this is a real dynamic that can happen in the world. Like, so there are actual situations where this triangle is real. I think, you know, what we're about to dive into here is when those, these roles become personality habits to some extent, right? Whereas maybe there was at one time an actual situation like this, but then it's almost like a groove starts to form. And then I start playing the role of the victim, even though maybe each instance isn't quite as cut and dry as that initial one. And so this is, you know, where I do see, um, some really gnarly dynamics sometimes getting set up where I'm used to actually how I get my needs met is by being a victim or yes. by being a rescuer versus actually, you know, being able to ask to have my needs met or, um, yeah, just the more proactive things I think we're talking to talking about, even taking it back to the deer process and in where we're going with this is, you know, it's so it can be very easy to fall into these relational grooves or like I love the metaphor used of, of dance, you know, relational dance. I did, I did some work once with, um, Sue Johnson of hold me tight and that's right. That's the metaphor she uses. So relationships, we get into the, I think she calls it like the demon dance or raw spot dance, you know, where my raw spot rubs against your raw spot. And when that's what's happening, there's a certain dynamic that's created. This triangle almost often really maps onto those dances, right? I learned to play this role in the situation, even if the situation itself isn't a full perfect enactment of this. I think that's the really key thing I wanted to point point out to to what you were speaking there, that there's a way we can kind of just fall into the habit and the identity of these, of these different roles. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Well, so maybe people who are listening are already kind of seeing their, their own habits, their own tendencies. I sometimes think it's also context dependent, like maybe like over here, um, like maybe one is like a, you know, the, the man of the house maybe feels sort of perpetually victim in the workplace, kind of low man on the hierarchy and then comes home and is an abuser and he becomes a perpetrator in the home system or the family system because he's venting or outletting something like this. Um, even sometimes people, yeah. Uh, I'm going to set that thought aside, but like noticing different ways you do one, right? Like it may be sort of here. If I like help, help, I'm over here. I can't do anything about this. I'm going to like, tweet attack somebody or I'm going to like complain or, you know, this triangulation can often happen where it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you just how shitty this boss is treating me so that you will get riled up about how awful, like, and like, I'm kind of creating this kind of collusion around my, how, how, woe is me, right? Like, like you might be doing that. Um, and then especially if like you get to succeed, it kind of, and is there something you can do about that for me? Right. You kind of find your rescuer to enroll them in like going and doing something for you. So you don't, you don't have to do it, right. You don't have to take responsibility for your role in the thing. Um, 
or rescuers, people who maybe have that kind of personality type, or just notice the context where your rescuer comes forward, where you're like, oh yeah, you know, if it's, um, this is this is sort of a nice, a nice guy one, right? Like, you know, I will always triangulate in favor of the woman and against the man. Cause it's obviously that the woman is, is valid and being a victim and the man is almost always the oppressor. And so I come in to be kind of like the white knight shining armor guy to kind of save the day. You know, that's what I sort of looking around for the, the women in my life who are being victimized or oppressed. And like, that's how I get my points, right? Like by, Oh yeah. Tell me, tell me about what an asshole your boyfriend is. And like, tell me about how hard it's been for you, man. Why are you with a jerk like that anyway? Man, I wish I could just, you know, fuck him up for you sometime. You know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) so maybe that's one context. uh, People sort of see them go into the rescuer role. And more broadly, socially, some people take it on themselves in more institutional or organizational context to sort of like be the, like people go to the HR department sometimes because they want to be the person to like, you know, help the working stiff, you know, against the management, you know, capitalists or whatever, mm-hmm. wherever you be a community organizer to like help the oppressed classes or something like that. Like you may be attracted to even careers or jobs that are coming out of this type of identity. Yeah. The, you know, the, the last two pieces that are just really coming up to me on this is one in the times I've participated in unhealthy versions of this dynamic or, or witnessed it Two, like when we're talking about this kind of more shadowy version of it that, that we're really speaking to here, there, there's this interesting thing where I think the roles can really bleed into each other in different ways where because it's one system, right, I can actually play the victim to perpetrate something. Yes. Right? Or in rescuing someone, I am actually perpetrating something, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm keeping a dynamic alive. Um, so in the shadow version of this, what, what I find so interesting is that I might, <laughs> I might be consciously wielding one of these roles, but the impact can actually be one of the other. So there's this really interesting, messy dynamic that, that happens here. Um, that I just wanted to kind of name. And then, you know, the other one of just the shadow version of this, uh, right. It, it can, it can just make it so easy to oversimplify things. Right. And this is where it can be weaponized in some sense. You know, I would say pr- particularly politically is, oh, I can very quickly orient these three notes that if I take this energy, then the other two have to exist. Right. And I can rile up a crowd or, or whatnot. You know, some, something our current president, I think, is very good at actually using this triangle yep. to, to, to create a dynamic he can take advantage of. Yep. Very much so. Very much so. So just one more piece, if you notice, like you might a lot of times people find it the hardest to associate with the perpetrator. Like they kind of, oh, I, I'm never, I never go to that role. Like, you know, but so anytime you sort of see yourself kind of go like, well, you know, haters going to hate, right? Haters are going to hate, you know, I, I can't let what other people, whatever, get to me or jealousy is a real thing. You know, I've got my stuff, but I worked hard for it or what, you know what I'm saying? Like this kind of like almost kind of defense, like, uh, I'm not racist. Right. There's another one. I'm not racist. There's racists out there. Got me. You know what I'm saying? Like that could be a little bit of the rescuer or a little bit of the perpetrator, depending on what, what you see in that. 
But like the thing I want to also emphasize, so if people can identify themselves, maybe they can identify having been caught in this cycle. Maybe you've identified a, a pattern or habit of your personality. You're attracted to one of these energies primarily, um, or maybe in different contexts like work versus home or intimate relationship versus with you know friends. You go into one versus another. Just to kind of really own up to one, like I was... Um, in my relationships with women in the past, very much in a victim mentality. Like women are like bad. They're doing something to me that's making me suffer. And I'm just over here just being a good guy, you know, and, you know, I'm not getting laid and it's their fault. It's all their fault. Um, and then my secondary one would sometimes be the rescuer. Like, yeah. Uh, tell tell me all about how your asshole boyfriend, like, you know, is treating you bad. And let me tell you how I would never treat you that way. Or tell me something I can do for you to like make this better. Going to do something to him or something like that. Um, I never got to the point of doing anything to him, but like I I can look at different contexts in my own history where I would fall into the dynamic and the identification with the role, and then the ways that it would it spirals down basically when the drama triangle is happening, the roles, like if the oppressor and the victim actually repaired their relationship, it would destroy the ability for the triangle to continue, which is fascinating, right? Like, and this is where the, the power of the deer process kind of comes in. But if so long as the repair remains perpetually in the future, no matter what gets done, then you're in sort of a downward spiral where it will never resolve because each group or each role each person needs it to continue because they're actually getting something even the victim from being in that role totally i in the, which you know, the just the, the sense that's coming up to me is yeah the the roles themselves energize the system right so yeah. the that circle can only exist when I'm inhabiting a role and what you're speaking to of like, if we repair those roles don't exist anymore, right? If we truly repaired trust that dynamic, that role isn't there and the whole circle just evaporates, Yes, um, which is something to a shocking extent sometimes <laughs> that we, we get invested in not happening because there is some kind of security or safety or just habitual um, knowingness of as long as I'm in this dynamic, I know who I am and I know what my part is. Um, you know, there's sometimes a bigger threat to identity or system that I've experienced when I more proactively subvert that role, right? And taking some type of responsibility as the rescuer, as the victim, as the... Um, Mm -hmm. perpetrator that then kind of it, it's almost like yeah it just d dissolves the whole dynamic and it can no longer exist in that same way totally so you know one way out of the dynamic is the deer process and i want to come back to the deer process in just a minute but i also want to bring in um so in response to the drama triangle this this uh i don't know if it was primarily david emerald or this group they created this thing called the ted the empowerment dynamic which is really a kind of upward spiral, like an inversion. Like if the drama triangle is like a doom loop that's just going down, uh, this is the uh, the TED, the, the, the empowerment dynamic is what they call it. The book is called The Power of TED. 
is uh, the way to kind of reverse, right? Imagine, it's like the flywheel is going one way. It's like you kind of like, let's turn this thing around and spin it the other way around. So the roles actually transform into three different ones. So the victim becomes the creator. The victim becomes the creator. And the focus of the victim moves from uh, what is the problem or the grievance to what is the outcome or solution that would resolve this for me? And, it, and there's a, like a little of an echo here of the amends in the deer process. What would I need for this yeah. to be good? The perpetrator becomes the challenger, right? And I think you as a coach, and I know me as a coach and as a men's group leader, sometimes do this, um, especially in men's work, a kind of like a young love where it's kind of like, I'm going to like actually amplify an antagonistic energy towards you because I care. And because I see that like, this will sort of force the issue for you to get creative, right? Like, and that requires a, a special kind of relationship um, as the challenger, you know, sometimes in a circle, we kind of set up like, a, okay, you're kind of going down this victim thing. Okay, mm -hmm. who's the guy Who's oppressing you. Okay. Like he's the guy. And like, all right. And then I, I, as the circle lead, I'm actually in the third role. This is the rescuer transforms into the coach or the facilitator. And they're, they're there to kind of help the dynamic come to resolution, right? Like what is it that each party sort of needs, right? Rather than me, like one of the things that the rescuer ends up doing in the doom loop version is I actually steal some of the dignity and I steal some of the actual autonomy and empowerment from the victim, which actually further victimizes them, right? It's totally. sort of like you as the victim, you can't possibly do something to make your situation better because you're a victim. So you need me to do it for you, right? Mm -hmm. Actually sort of, instead of being the rescuer, doing it for them, kind of tries to nurture the dynamic in a way such that it's, it gets to resolution and that the victor rediscovers their own creativity or autonomy. So the victim becomes creator. The perpetrator becomes the challenger. The rescuer becomes the facilitator. And, you know, sometimes, you know, the way we presented the deer process, it was sort of a pair. But this kind of brings me to my secondary tip is like sometimes it's just real hard. You're trying to make a thing right with somebody. And you tried it one-on-one, -on -one, you tried the deer process and it kind of didn't quite do it. Maybe you need help, right? That's when you enlist one of your friends, somebody who's also in your authentic relating community, maybe somebody who has already themselves agreed to this deer process. Sometimes totally. all you need to do is just sit there and observe. Uh, but, but really what you're doing is you're trying to transform the conflict situation between you, the, the, if there's to, to the degree, there's like, um, you know, the, um, <clears throat> the criminal, right. And the victim of the crime, right. Or something like that, the oppressor and the oppressed, right? you're trying to get out of that dynamic yeah. and you need the help of a third party sometimes to like, just be there to help that happen. Like, like, Hey, maybe like, Hey, I'm trying to do a deer process. We tried it one-on-one, -on -one, didn't work. Can you just sit here and 
maybe like if you see us go off the rails or starting to go off, can you just like chime in and help us get back on track with the, with the deer? Yeah, I can do that. I've, I've been there for that sort of thing for people. Anyway, I'm kind of curious, like your experience with maybe like reversing the flywheel of this doom loop, like, and uh, if you've been a part of that in any of the roles or anything like that. Um, I'm, this is totally new to me, the, the, the TED process. I love it. I'm like, wow, I, this is something I dynamically want to learn like soon. Uh, j- just the words <laughs> are a bigger relief to my nervous system, right? Like how empowering just the word creator is. I mean, it just shifts so much energetically and makes what I love about it is it, it, it feels generative in, in evolutionary, right. As opposed to, um, like, yeah, that de-evolutionary system of kind of getting stuck and actually sometimes going in the opposite direction and entrenching things more. This feels like, oh, how do we actually dynamically evolve the system forward, right, in, in a way that I, I love so much in that I, I totally agree, you know, in any relational dynamic, sometimes bringing in a third party you know, is what's, you know, so great about having a therapist or a couples coach. It's just sometimes someone who's sitting a little bit outside the system can dynamically change the dynamics of the system or see things that we can't see necessarily in our system. Um, And having a a coach in that sense feels really strong. Um, And again, you know, what I really like about this is how much agency it's giving. You know, it's really promoting agency in each person right to to take responsibility and um actually get in touch with their power you know i think that's such a a cool shift in this dynamic that to actually get in touch and fruitfully use and harness power to um, make the relational system stronger and better and more serving for all parties involved yep totally so i'm excited because i think we've ready to bridge into like the macro are you ready to go let's do it so um i think we're gonna need to refer at least briefly to just kind of our current cultural moment you know here we are in july 2020 and not even a few months ago there was this killing of george floyd and a huge uprising uh you might call it a racial justice uprising or a criminal justice reform uprising, you know, or some kind of agglomeration or intersection of those two kind of movements. And I think it's been both kind of like sad for me, like hard in moments, but also really inspiring in other moments. And like my hope for change here in a positive way has been really kind of stoked. And um, the place where I see a good solution for maybe um, better forms of justice is in this uh, approach called restorative justice. And it's fairly new-ish by that name. They actually, they actually use the term circle for like, or sometimes conference, which is kind of funny. <laughs> uh, I first heard of it. We had a, I think it was in our relational leadership conference at the integral center. And a friend of mine, Chris uh, presented uh, this idea of restorative justice. 
And that was kind of the first I heard of it. And he was just basically like, everybody, you got to see this thing that they're using out there. And they're using it for like, you know, conflict resolution in high schools or juvenile infractions instead of like a traditional kind of adversarial justice process. And it's making some headway and it's, and it's based exactly on our principles of authentic relating and circling. And I was like, bookmark, right? I kind of bookmarked that. And it have in moments sort of explored that, like how would, you know, potentially like the evolution of justice in the future be. And I even brought it up, I think, on our last talk, the, the stitching talk. So maybe by way of, well, let me kind of bridge, like I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and there was a recent one with Ezra Klein, and this is one we should probably put a note to, um, he spoke with a woman who's really deeply involved with the restorative justice movement. And, you know, he's been trying to, you know, use his voice to be a part of whatever this moment of potential, you know, evolution reform that's happening in our world today. And he's gotten really interested in uh, nonviolent approaches, you know, like Gandhi, Martin Luther King. I put nonviolent communication as a kind of the relational version of that. It actually sort of came around the same time. I mean, Marshall, Marshall writes about the, the race riots in Detroit where he was a boy that was part of his inspiration in leading him to create nonviolent communication. So, so there's a way that there's this real beautiful intersection of the underlying values and sometimes the underlying practices and processes that are part of nonviolent communication, circling authentic relating and restorative justice practices. It's actually you sort of peel back the hood. It's based on the same underlying principles. And I think it's totally cool. And to do a little int, uh, integral geek geek out for a second, um, you know, in, if we use this kind of first tier, second tier model that I think uh, Ken Wilbur uses, and Gene Gebser kind of um, used it also this idea when you get to the second tier, the integral it sort of restores or kind of recapitulates the first tier structures. So if you start reading and looking into restorative justice literature, which I'm fairly new to, I've only kind of gotten into it in recent weeks after listening to this interview with Ezra Klein, um, that there's a lot of acknowledgement to indigenous practices. You know, it's actually fairly widespread in New Zealand, I think it is the standard state standardized method of dealing with juvenile offenses in New Zealand. And, and there's a lot of influence. I, I don't know if you like New Zealand sort of has like this very different colonial ish history where uh, the Maori were not totally oppressed or devastated or destroyed. And so there's actually been a kind of a co-evolution of like, you might say like white European culture alongside Maori culture in New Zealand. Um, and I think, so I think they're more, they're more integrated in that sense. Yeah. Um, but, you know, restorative practices are not, are not limited simply to the New Zealand indigenous peoples. It actually is common throughout a lot of other indigenous peoples. And this idea is here, like, you know, you, you don't throw somebody, you don't lock somebody away. You don't have any place to lock them away, right? Like you, you actually have to restore the relationship of trust with the person in the tribe so that we can continue onward. And, yeah, if you look at the the model that we have, this kind of punitive or retributive model, the idea is it's very strange, right? Like somebody commits a crime, 
And it's not the aggrieved person that brings the prosecution. It's the state. It's a little bit like the rescuer in the, in the drama triangle, actually. A third party is going to intervene here on behalf of society, right? And if you think about what the, let's say the perpetrator, let's say you're, you're a young person and maybe this is like one of your first offenses or your very first offense. Your initial intuition might be, man, what I really want to do is I want to own up to what I've done. I want to apologize and I want to make it right. But the defense attorney is like, hell no, you can't say that shit. You can't confess. Otherwise, you're going to get locked up. Because why? Because there's a standard type of sentencing or there's a standardized way of doing sentences, which will put you into the criminal justice system. It'll lock you up and then you're going to get really hardened into a hardened criminal. So we got to do everything to keep you out there. And so now you're lying in order to bring this to resolution as the perpetrator. Brutal. It's brutal, right? And then the victim, think about the victim. Sometimes people are like, I, I you know, I, I just, I just want, wanted him to say sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to say sorry. I wanted yeah. to explain why he did what he did. And I want to hear maybe he's doing something different yep. so that this won't happen again to the people he loves. But I don't get to say what I would need as the victim. Like the, the way that the justice system is currently set up in its punitive form and procedurally, it, it's adversarial. Like it sort of prevents the victim and the perpetrator from finding the solution that they might otherwise wish to find because the state has sort of intervened itself with this punitive retributive model. Anyway, like this is the motivations where the motivation for a new paradigm of restorative justice comes from. I'm curious, this is, have you heard about this or do you know much about it? And it's pretty new to me. You had mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. And so it's, it's new on my radar and I'm just absorbing it. But it, it, again, what I like about it is it, it feels agile and it feels the, the emphasis seems to me just even on what you're explaining now and even taking it back to the deer process or the Ted triangle, you know, the healthy version of it, of like moving the system forward. Yes. Right. So actually allowing things to not just be stuck in stasis, um, but to actually allow the systems to, to move forward in, in a way where there's growth, there's learning, there's responsibility involved on everyone's part but it feels yeah it feels active it feels dynamic um it feels agile like that seems really exciting to me and it it again you know when i just thinking about it the the impact it has on my nervous system is it feels more relaxing because it doesn't feel like feeling into a process like this uh, part of what i'm I'm kind of projecting on it is nothing's quite final right there's like well for now right Mm -hmm. This is what brings harmony for now. And then, you know, we'll get more data, more interactions will happen versus like, oh my God, I did one thing wrong and now I'm screwed. Like there's no, there's no, I could be the best person in the world, but I'm stuck. Right. Um, yeah. And, and this just feels like much more fresh in that sense where there's more like ocean waves just like coming in. Uh, here's a new set and we're going to handle it instead of just being anchored to these more static processes processes right totally 
Yeah. I mean, it sounds a little idealistic and honestly, like I'm, as I'm getting into it, I'm like, man, I don't know if it can be a wholesale replacement, you know, you know, sometimes what if there's really bad people or actual sociopaths and we need to do, do something about that. And you know, what if the people can't come to resolution, even if they bring in, you know, these kind of third party restorative justice facilitator experts, you know, and they still can't find a resolution. Uh, but, but a few things uh, I want to point out that, you know, speaking as an, an amateur, uh, you know, interested party in it that I've discovered is like, it's, it doesn't necessarily require, um, that you get along in the future. Like you may actually sort of negotiate a thing. It's sort of like, you could actually imagine, uh, a, a restorative circle for a person's breakup, right? Like, you know, this, this couple, we've all known them and we're going to have the conscious uncoupling ceremony. You could even say, if you do that right, it's like, well, you know, like, I would like it if, you know, you informed so-and-so if you're going to be at any of these locations, you know, and so they could pass a message. Like, let's say if it's bad, you know what I'm saying? Like you can, you can come up with very clever ways of essentially saying like, look, I just want to know you're going to be in a 12 step program and that like we can reconvene, you know, six months from now and you can tell me all about how it, how it's going. Right. Like, or, you know, share with me, you know, your experience growing up and like, tell me what your family home was like. Oh, it was really broken. Blah, blah, blah. Like there may be all kinds of interesting things that don't, like I said, don't, they don't necessarily lead to restoring the previous situation. Like with the deer process, the R step can be a renegotiation and it may be a renegotiation, which is sort of like something very different than what came before the key ingredient here is that it is mutual. We have shared reality about the change that we are creating together. And here, you know, if there's, if there's a victim and a perpetrator, you know, if there's an aggrieved party and somebody who did the infraction, like these people, you know, they may not want to be friends, right? Like that's fine. But whatever solution they arrive to, they arrive to together okay, we're mutually agreeing that this is better. And in a way that kind of preserves, uh, this is reminding me of our shared reality conversation, right? Like the shared reality that we experience together, even if we're agreeing to disagree, right? Shared reality is not agreement, right? It's just a mutual understanding of whatever the thing is. And so I, I sort of see like, almost like a hundred percent compatibility between authentic relating processes like setting context, weaving shared reality and the deer process is completely compatible with restorative approaches or restorative practices. Like the field has actually expanded now where they're like, look, you know, the restorative justice circles, those are need, those need to happen when there's like a total breakdown. Right. Like the, the community needs to gather around and figure mm -hmm. out what to do. And, and actually third party stakeholders and community members are invited to the circle as well to like help figure it out. Um, Cause the impact ripples through. There's like a presupposition of interconnectedness. Like it's affecting all of us, right? Like love that. our breakup might be affecting our friends. I mean, I'm sure it's affecting our friends in some way. All right. Let's hear from them. Like, what do they think this thing? Let's all listen in to what the relationship needs even if it's a relationship that's going through a breakup, it might want to become another thing. Like, so what does that look like in the context of our relationships? Mm -hmm. 
And the more broad, like restorative practices really just start sounding like, well, you know, the restorative people go like, how is it that we can bring in just like the norms of, of, of like relationship and empathy and understanding and authenticity and mutuality, like into our everyday lives so that like restorative practices just feel like an extension of that. And I'm just like, hello, we got that here in the authentic relationship. Done, done, done. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, no, I like that. I mean, in right, what I see is the the spectrum of, um, you know, maybe maybe it seems a little idealistic just on the outside, you know, restorative justice at first, but there's a, you know, even how we started with kind of the micro in our own individual lives, how we can start using deer to shift these dynamics and these roles we play, that the more we all t- take this on as individuals as, as practices, um, as a strategy for dealing with conflict, the more, you know, I imagine it's going to kind of till the soil, so to speak, for the, the bigger systemic and cultural versions of this to take root, because these are dynamics we understand and we've lived in our body, in our relationships. So then it makes sense when we start to see it apply at that more, um, systemic level in it, it, yeah, it just it just strikes me as, as a, you know a, co- a cool way to <laughs> start taking ownership of well, how do I change the world? Will I actually change how I handle conflict or the breaking of agreements in my relationships right now? Like that's a very concrete thing that you know does start to create a culture where something like restorative justice, I think, can really install. Because there's a lot of people who are already actively engaging in the energetics of that. Totally, totally. This is, and you know, if, you know, another way, you know, a a lot of people that we know are, you know, solopreneurs or they have kind of what are like post-conventional organizations or trying to create things like movements or consultancies or things like the integral center, community centers, these types of things. Uh, you know, coalitions of coaches and facilitators. There's, I've, I've gotten wind of many of these kinds of things in our circles. And, um, you know, as you know, I really love holacracy as a process of negotiating and determining what the expectations of work are. These are the kind of agreements and such. But, you know, in a weird way, holacracy only focuses on the work. It doesn't actually focus on the people. And, uh, there's something that feels a little weird. Like if you do holacracy at your organization, it feels a little weird to, um, do because holacracy is like decentralized authority over work. It sort of feels weird to do something like a traditional HR department, right? If you, if you actually sort of have a sort of cynical view of HR in a lot of ways, because it's, because it is a hierarchical centrally controlled organization then culture starts to be kind of dictated from the top down. And then you get, you get justice, quote unquote justice in organizations that feels really weird. Like, you know, okay, you know, tap on the shoulder. We'd like you to come over to the conference room now. And then there's a lawyer and there's your boss and then there's you. And then there's anything they put, you know, here's a piece of paper. And what we'd like you to do is to, you know, sign here and we will pay you out this thing and you know somebody somebody somewhere complained about something and we're not going to tell you who it was or exactly what the complaint was 
but we'll give you some money to get out of here. Right. Like, or, and it's kind of like, wait a minute, like I can't learn from this. Right. Like, but the incentives in a weird way, actually they sort of mirror the retributive justice incentives over here in the state based criminal system. Right. And it's like, so what, what does healthy culture practice look like in the organizations of the future where maybe we have a different kind of construct where we're not like, you know, I think I talked about it last time too. It's like, you know, there's bosses and employees. Well, I don't want to be an employee. I also don't want to be a boss and I also don't want to work alone. So what do I do? Well, let's make one of these cooperative network organizations. Okay, cool. But there's no centralized HR in a cooperative network, but we still need a way to handle interpersonal conflict and grievances when it comes up. Absolutely. So what do we use? Ta-da! Dear plus restorative practice plus the empowerment dynamic to reverse the victim triangle, right? This becomes a suite of, and, and I, and you know, I talked to Robert and we've talked about like where we fell short at the integral center. Like we tried, but we did not actually institute contract. Like, well, if we were to go back, one thing we could have done has been like, okay, anybody here who is leading a thing, anybody here who is volunteering to be part of the faculty apprenticeship team, anybody here who's got a key and is unlocking the door or leading a yoga class or whatever, we have a covenant with each other. And the covenant is just like what we do at the beginning of a course weekend. When there is a grievance or a violated agreement, we have pre-agreed to use this restorative practice with each other. And we have we actually had breakdowns where it's just like, I, I sort of wished I had that person's name signed on a thing that I could say, you agreed to go work this out in this way and I will show up for that, right? Instead, I had victim people trying to triangulate me into the rescuer role, given my position of power and authority at the integral center. And I kept trying to not do it. And I would try to get them to do the other one. And most of the time, like 99% of the time it was fine. I was like, Oh, you want me to go? You want me to bring it directly to them? Oh, can you be there for us and facilitate that? Like, no problem. Right. But then there was places where it just completely broke down. And all I was hearing was like, I won't bring it to them. I won't bring it to them. I'm the victim. They're the perpetrator. No, I'm the victim. They're the perpetrator. You have to do something about this. And I was like, Oh, you're trying, I could feel the claws of the drama triangle, like trying to get me into it, you know? And I was like, man, if we could redo that, we would have a, a culture agreement for organizations that were, would install pre-commitments to restorative justice practice, like as a way of resolving conflict. And I recommend that if you're a leader in a community group or a post-conventional type of organization to look into this, as the way of dealing with interpersonal grievances. I love it. It's got me super excited, <laughs> super excited to like, yeah, to, to, to do my part to learn some of this. Cause I honestly, it's even hitting me. Like these are the types of things that I would like to be able to learn to create a, a different culture on, um, on set. So, right. So I also do film like films, a very high stress, um, very fluid, creatively dynamic, lots of different people with different responsibilities. Um, and right now it's kind of all just lumped on certain people's like, well, 
if it if if things go wrong, it's the director's fault, right? Because ultimately, I'm holding the whole set and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but having pre agreements like these that you know, here's how we deal with this stuff on set. So if you co- choose to come be part of our production, right? This is the process that you're agreeing to if something goes wrong or if you drop the ball or someone, right? And that just really excites me, actually. Um, and it excites me because having processes like this, I think, would actually create, uh, you know, it's the beautiful thing of structures like this creates more safety. And when there's more safety, there's more opportunity for actually more novelty and creativity and and, and just like actually being in the moment rather than, you know, the, the tenseness that I think can we can hold. And I've seen sometimes when someone doesn't do something they said they were going to do from one department and then just, ah, it's their fault. And, my family, and it becomes a whole mess. So uh, yeah, I'm actually super inspired to just take this in for, for my own selfish reasons when running a set where it's like, Oh my God, this would be so cool. Uh, what a fun yeah. way to create a new culture um, to make it even more fun to be with each other. You know, I think that's part of, you know, one thing that um, tying it back into some what we talked about in the beginning with the relationship is, you know, there's a, I I always talk about this in in terms of intimate relationships in in like the two types of trust, right? There's like, I trust you. And then there's, I trust that we have a mechanism for dealing with things when trust is lost, which is something which is a type of trust that only builds up over time when that process has actually been gone through, right? When it's like, oh, I did upset my partner or she upset me and we found a way to move through that, which has this effect over time of, well, then I'm not so afraid of messing up, right? Like I don't have to quite be as afraid to make a mistake or do something wrong because I can trust our unit can work through this in, you know, that's like a very micro version of that. But I, you know, even just feeling into like societally or culturally, what that would be like, if we really trusted our justice system, like, yes, holy crap, like just uh, right. Like what a different way to be in the world and to, to, um, you know, just take a big exhale in our country of like, Cause you know, I notice I don't trust it right now. All right. I don't fully trust that process to actually be conducive to evolution <laughs> uh, in that sense and making, trying to make things more creative and better for all those involved. Totally. Totally. This thing you're bringing in, and maybe this, this is an interesting way to tie it all together is um, in, in our, Aqual integral model, we have the four quadrants and the bottom two are the collective quadrants. The lower left is kind of the cultural interpersonal and the lower right is the system, right? And we've been talking about, in a way, the interconnection between the two of them, right? And this kind of trust, this sort of like feelings of trust or declarations of trust or belief in our trust maybe is more kind of this lower left kind of mutuality feeling or a vibe that we have of trusting trustworthiness, a trusting relationship or community, but we achieve it in part by the architecture of a system or an agreed to set of practices that amplifies it and that cultivates it. And that when we lose that vibe of trust, because we're in a conflict pair or a conflict group situation, we rely on our pre-commitment to the system to restore it. Right. And if we, and when we, 
when I hear these terms that are sort of thrown around and maybe mean a lot of different things to a lot of people, like what does it, what does systemic oppression or systemic injustice mean? Well, it sort of means that like that set of processes that we invoke or practice to like restore the integrity of the culture or the society are not doing that, that job adequately anymore. It's in fact, it's perpetuating injustices by how it's structured, right? Yeah. It's, structured. it's fueling the circle. It's that tri- triangle, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's in the doom loop triangle. Like, we need, we need the perpetrators and we need the victims and we need these oppressed groups and we need to have these people that we like turn into felons and throw them into jail and blah, 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 blah. Like, and it's kind of, it's sort of weird, you know, to say that we need it, but like in a way that system feeds itself by needing those things. And the incentives are all aligned right now to just keep, I mean, this is why a ever increasing proportion of the population is incarcerated, right? Like, it, like, how do we stop that? Right? Like, and the, these types of practices and like it's is one of the ways and like it really is about like the right coupling of values, like shared values in the lower left and the system that embodies those values and incentivizes them and reinforces them or repairs them when they're lost is the relationship in between the two quadrants in this way. Boom. My favorite integral geeky speak there. That, but it, totally, that's exactly the dynamic I was speaking to and how these two are related. And uh, well, of course they're related in the integral sense from, from the four quadrants, but seeing it play out in these two, two lenses feels really, really exciting. And yeah, I'm, I'm just like, oh my God, I can't wait to go absorb even more about these topics. Awesome. And, you know, it's one of the things I've enjoyed about podcasting you is how holographic a lot of our discussions are. And I'm like, wow, even what we're talking about here, right, is reframing for me an understanding of what I imagine some libertarian ideology and belief is about, you know, where justice happens and how close yeah. to the actual system that the the dynamic was born in, like, that's where it should be, you know, um, healed in, so to speak. Uh, and, and just that it's so involved in all the things we're talking about really that uh, all these threads really are connected in in a pretty exciting way. Yeah, totally, man. This has been so much fun. Thanks for going down this road with me. Yeah. And we're, we'll um, definitely check out the show notes on this one. Uh, Michael and I will put together a couple different links that'll tie together some of the things we spoke about um, in this just super juicy episode. And that uh, we hope you take the take some uh, personal responsibility and, you know, learn the deer system and, and, and bring it to someone in your life, you know, offer them a deer of, of, a, of a, a, t- a time you were out of integrity or violated a, a, a boundary. Like there's, you know, it, again, it, it just creates so much trust Totally. when these processes are actually actively happening in relief. Cause then we don't have to be perfect. <laughs> exactly. Awesome, man. Talk to you next time. Special shout out and thanks to Screaming Witness for the amazing intro and outro song. Check them out. <laughs>